BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. There is a lot going on in Washington, D.C., first of all. The Trump administration has appointed a convicted war criminal, a guy who covered up the massacre of a thousand people as their special envoy to Venezuela. Elliot Abrams, the guy that was pardoned by George Bush Sr. as part of the Iran-Contra pardons that stopped the investigation into Bush himself. It's really pretty amazing. We have a crisis right now in America. We are experiencing a crisis. You know, for years, I have been saying on this program, and I wrote about this in my book, Crash of 2016, should have been titled The Coming Crash rather than putting a year on it. But in any case, I, you know, I, I wrote about this. I've talked about this many times that if you look at the arc of American history, of the history of our republic, the, the political and practical history of the United States, what you see is that the times that we have had significant lurches forward in a progressive direction, when the country has, has moved in a positive and forward-looking direction, have always been after great crises. You had, you know, the tax, the, the Stamp Act, and then the Tea Act of 1773, as I recall, followed by the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre, and boom, you've got the American Revolution, and then you've got this progressive change, substantial one, you know, self-governance. And then you have the Civil War, and after the Civil War, another progressive change, the passage of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, things like this. Now, there was always a a backlash to that progressive change, but it was there. You had the great crisis, the way that was referred to as the Great Panic of 1893, which lasted all the way up till 1898. This was one of the worst depressions America had ever experienced. It was the second worst compared to the, the depression we had during Andrew Jackson's presidency in the 1830s. And that then in some ways led to, or that crisis, I would say, was exacerbated by the assassination of McKinley in 1901, putting Teddy Roosevelt into the White House. Teddy was McKinley's vice president. And Teddy Roosevelt used that crisis, right? Never let a crisis go to waste. Teddy Roosevelt used that crisis to, to go on this trust-busting thing, breaking up big corporations and taxing the rich putting into place an estate tax and banning rich people and corporations from participating in politics. The 1907 Tillman Act that made it a felony for a corporation to put money into federal elections or politicians running for federal office. I mean, it was pretty amazing stuff. And then, of course, the great crash of 1929 and World War II, which led to FDR and the New Deal, which transformed America with Social Security and long-term unemployment and the government as the employer of last resort, all these policies that came out of that. Even the Vietnam War, I would say that crisis, you know, Richard Nixon and all that, um, you know, led to some substantial attempts anyway at progressive change. LBJ probably would not have done his great society if he didn't have the Vietnam War pressing against him. So if we're looking at things that cause change, historically it's been these crashes, essentially. Is it possible, and I think it is, in fact, I think this is the case, that the simple fact of Donald Trump's presidency is enough of a crisis 
that it falls into the category of the of the Great Depression, of the Vietnam War, of the Panic of 1893, of the Civil War, of the Tea Act, is it enough of a crisis for America? Has it got Americans sufficiently freaked out that that crisis of Donald Trump's presidency in and of itself is going to lead to a, a significant progressive movement that is going to take on the status quo and that is going to elect a genuine progressive president in 2020. Do you think that's possible? And if so, who do you think is going to be the standard bearer of that? Louise and I watched last night uh, part of the interview that Lawrence O'Donnell had with Elizabeth Warren. I'm guessing that he booked that kind of at the last minute as a rebuttal to CNN doing a town hall with Kamala Harris. We then went and watched this town hall with Kamala Harris. She just kicked it out of the park. She said that she's in favor of Medicare for all, that she's in favor of debt-free college, that she's in favor of the Green New Deal. Some of her endorsements were not quite as full-throated as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but they were there. Meanwhile, there's, there's an article in the paper that Democrats in New York are planning a primary challenge against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, they got to primary her because she's not corporate enough, right? I think what we're seeing right here is the edge of the old age and the beginning of the new. We're looking at a political collapse in the Republican Party, and frankly, a political collapse in the Democratic Party among essentially kind of the old guard, being brought about by the attempted capture of both political parties by the billionaire class, the bankster class, the Walmart class, the, you know, basically the giant corporations and, and the billionaires that they make. And my sense of it is that Americans have had enough. Probably the two leading contenders for president right now are Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. And actually I should reverse the order, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. You know, everybody says Joe Biden's at the top of the polls. I don't believe it. I think Joe Biden is at the top of name recognition. And seven out of 10 Americans right at this particular moment in time, or seven out of 10 Democrats even, are probably not paying careful attention to who might be running for president. I mean, you know, the primary season has not even started. And I think that, that name recognition that Biden has is going to fade away really fast. I'm wondering about Beto O'Rourke. Has he got a chance? I'm wondering what Bernie is going to do and, and how much Bernie can translate, you know, four years ago into this year. Or are people going to say, well, his time has passed. You know, he had a good shot at it. What do you think? Who, who do you see that could take on Trump? Who do you see who could take on the Republicans? Who do you see who could take on, you know, the, the people in the Democratic Party who want to primary uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because, you know, she's too liberal? Where do we go with this? How does this work out? How does this shake out? Or do you think that I'm completely wrong, that the Trump presidency is not a crisis? I mean, it, for example, here's a, some of the things that tell me that this is a crisis. Down in Florida, you've got a legislation sponsored by a Republican from Ocala. He wants schools to teach different worldviews on the issues of evolution and climate change. He says, nothing's ever settled if it's science because people are always questioning science. Right. It's unresolved, says a, says a guy who wants to teach climate change denial. Number one. Number two, there are these two chemicals called PFOA and PFOS. PFOA and PFOS have been linked to kidney cancer, testicular cancer, high blood pressure, and a whole selection, a whole variety of other ailments. These things cause disease. They are in the drinking water of 110 million Americans at levels that have been demonstrated in lab tests to cause harm. And the Trump administration just announced that they are not going to set drinking water limits for these two chemicals because these two chemicals make a lot of money for 3M. These are the chemicals that are used in manufacturing Teflon, basically. And they get in your drinking water, and they are in about a third of our drinking water. Now, it's a big problem, PFOA, in uh, West Virginia, for example. Uh, even Shelley Moore Capito, the uh, Republican from West Virginia, has flipped out about this. 
Federal scientists last summer concluded that PFOA and PFOS pose dangers at extremely low concentrations in a health assessment that the Trump administration officials initially tried to block. How is that not a crisis? Here's another one. Donald Trump is watching Fox and Friends. Fox and Friends puts on this wackadoodle North Dakota Republican, Representative Aaron McWilliams, who says that we need to start teaching the Bible in our schools. Trump tweets out after watching Fox and Friends. This is how bizarre this is. Tell me this isn't a crisis. Trump tweets out, numerous states introducing Bible literacy classes, giving students the option of studying the Bible. Starting to make a turn back? Great! Exclamation mark. Really? This isn't a crisis? And then, you know, Elliot Abrams, as I mentioned as, you know, in, the, in the beginning, this is the guy who tried to conceal the massacre of a thousand mostly women and children murdered by U.S.-trained Salvadoran guerrillas. Murdered. Elliot Abrams was going to go to prison for this and other crimes around Iran-Contra. And he was pardoned by George Bush Sr. as part of a cover-up of crimes that George Bush Sr. himself was involved in. A cover-up, by the way, that was engineered by William Barr, the guy that Trump wants to make our attorney general. Bill Barr recommended to Bush Sr. that he pardon Elliot Abrams and Casper Weinberger and four other people. In order to stop that investigation, Bill Barr told Bush Sr., just pardon these guys. This convicted war criminal was just put in charge of our policies with regard to Venezuela. A guy who oversaw a cover-up of the slaughter of a thousand mostly women and children by Salvadoran death squads that we had trained during the Reagan administration. You tell me this is not a crisis? You've got lobbyists running the EPA, lobbyists running the Interior Department, lobbyists running the FDA, lobbyists running the USDA. This is not a crisis? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And if we can acknowledge that this is a crisis, is this as substantial a crisis as the Great Depression that could produce the same kind of very powerful progressive response? Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. You're listening to Tom Hartman. One of the people that I often turn to, particularly when it comes to international issues or conflicts, one of the people whose opinion I have the greatest respect for is sometimes just only thought of as, you know, the kind of in-your-face performance artist, activist that has made Code Pink so famous. But Medea Benjamin has written some just extraordinary, in-depth books and other writings on foreign policy. Her book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection, is must-reading for everybody in America. Her analysis and understanding of what's going on in Cuba caused me to join a Code Pink group, Louise and I, to visit Havana last year. We had a wonderful time. I uh, strongly encourage you to check them out. So as things are falling apart, as the wheels are coming off in Venezuela, we reached out to Medea to see if she was also, you know, an expert or an authority in that part of the world, and she has considerable knowledge. So I wanted to bring her on and talk about it. Medea Benjamin is with us. Medea, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tom. Good to be on with you. It's great to have you. And I should add your Twitter handle is Medea, M-E-D-E-A, Benjamin, and Code Pink, obviously, CodePink.org or GlobalExchange.org. So, you know, Chavez dies. Maduro was his kind of number two guy. He becomes president. Then he runs for election, gets reelected recently, just in the last few months, I guess. And the United States and Canada, which is the part that really had me scratching my head, 
and a number of other countries, including some European countries, are actually recognizing the guy who ran against him. This would be the equivalent of countries saying after the election here in November 2016, you know, that's all very good that Donald Trump won the presidency, but Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than he did. And there's considerable evidence of illegal voter suppression across, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio. More people were thrown off the voting rolls than voted for Trump in those states. And so we're going to recognize Hillary Clinton as president of the United States. Or am I overstating this? Well, maybe you should compare it to saying Nancy Pelosi should be head of state because you can say our elections are quite fraudulent. And I would say with all the money in our elections, they're not very democratic. And then you could say that Donald Trump is incapable of running this government. And so Nancy Pelosi, we're going to declare her president. And some people might think, great. And I'm sure in Venezuela, a lot of people are saying, great. But you know what? That's not the way things should work. Yeah. I'm with you. So what's happened in Venezuela and what's going on? What's the, how did we get to this situation? Well, it's important to recognize, Tom, that the economic situation is dire and that a lot of it has to be attributed to terrible mismanagement on the part of the government, corruption in the government. But we also have to recognize that a good part of it is also the economic sanctions. And when you hear the Trump administration talking about how much we care about the Venezuelan people, well, one good thing would be to lift the sanctions because they really are affecting the lives of ordinary people who are really hurting. That's really uh, interesting. So he, one of the things yeah. that I learned years ago that just changed my thinking on all this is that there's basically two ways to produce inflation. One is to debase a currency, which is what Germany did in the early 30s and happened in Zimbabwe, where you actually, where the government intentionally devalues their own currency, and thus you have inflation. The other is to have a loss of a absolutely necessary part of your economy, a, typically a commodity. This is what happened in the United States in the 1970s, with the Arab oil boycott, or embargo rather, and it made oil so scarce in the United States, the price of oil went over, you know, to $100 a barrel, and the consequence of that was that that produced inflation through the rest of the economy, because pretty much everything runs on oil in the United States. So I think they're talking 10,000% inflation in Venezuela. Is that the result of a government decision to debase their currency, or is that the result of our embargo causing certain necessary pieces of the economy, food, for example, or it could even be something as unusual but still you know, essential as toilet paper that's just not available, and so the price is being driven up insanely, and that produces the inflation. What's going on? How's it happening? Well, you hit the two of them, and then you implied the third, talking about the oil embargo. We have to also say that the price of oil went from over $100 a barrel mm -hmm. till down to about 30 So the government lost a third of its revenue with the wild inflation of the oil market. Now, other countries have done a much better job at dealing with that. Venezuela had all these social programs that were initiated under Chavez, building 2 million new houses for people, allowing anybody who wanted to get free education all the way through college, free medical care, all of these things. And those expenses didn't go down, but when they had a third of the revenue that they had, and then with the U.S. sanctions, part of it is that Venezuela can't use the banking system. Uh, mm. So its economy is totally crippled. And now the U.S. is saying that it's seizing Venezuelan assets and going to give them over to this parallel government that it created. That money, even separate from oil, the money that the Venezuelans had in England that was in gold reserves is now going to be given, they're saying, to this parallel government. According to the Venezuelans, I mean, who knows? We can't take those figures on face value, but they say that the U.S. economic sanctions in the last year alone has cost the economy $23 billion. Now, even if they exaggerated that, and it was half of that, it's many billions of dollars, which is why for many Venezuelans, when Mike Pompeo said, we care so much about Venezuela, we're going to give them in humanitarian aid $20 million, and them meaning not the present government, but this parallel government, many people in Venezuela said, wait a minute, you know, you cost us over $20 billion, and now you're going to give us 20 million crumbs. So the situation is dire for a complex variety of reasons. The question really is how to move forward. And the way that the U.S. is proposing it now is really 
very, very scary. It seems to me like when you try to divide the military and they're going home to home of people in the military saying, abandon the government, go with us, when the U.S. is helping to orchestrate this whole thing from Washington, when they bring in people like Elliot Abrams, who is known for his support of right-wing death squads, this is all leading in one direction, and that is towards a civil war in Venezuela. You have Mm. such a polarized society, Tom, with at least six million people who support the government and then millions of others who don't support the government. The only way out of this situation that's not going to be a violent one is through negotiations, and that's why the proposals put forward by Mexico and Uruguay are so critical, and we should be saying, yes, let's pull our support and give it to those two countries that have a very good reputation in Latin America and say, we want them to be the mediators. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, I understand also that now Russia is jumping into this act. If civil war were to break out in Venezuela, could it be like the Vietnamese war, where essentially it's a proxy war, it's U.S. agents against Russian agents? And if so, what does that lead us to? Imagine, I think the kind of horror that we're seeing in Syria could happen in Venezuela. And there are a number of people I've been talking to who hate the Maduro government, who are really worried about what they're calling the Syriaization of their country. Mm. Because, as you say, Russia has a huge stake in Venezuela, as does China. Russia, because of the debt that Venezuela has, and Russia has lent them a massive amount of money, now owns 49.9% of Citgo the Venezuelan oil company. And China has major, major investments and big debts that the Venezuelans owe. So there is a lot of economic interest at hand. Your listeners should know that Venezuela does have the world's largest oil reserves. So Even larger than Saudi Arabia? Even larger than Saudi Arabia. Wow. So this is a place that people are not going to wipe their hands easily and say, oh, we'll let the U.S. figure this out. No, you have big countries like China and Russia who are standing behind Maduro. You also have division inside Latin America. When I was at the Organization of American States and got up at the end of Pompeo's talk to say, don't support a coup in Venezuela, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of applause in the room because half of the countries now at the Organization of American States are supporting Maduro and the other half are opposing him. So Mm -hmm. these splits are intense. Wow. What can average Americans do? Call their senator at 202-224-3121 or their member of the House and say, here's my opinion, or what? Is there? You know, we elect these people precisely, I mean, to deal with our issues here at home, but also to be there when there are international crises and be level-headed about these things. And so far, only six members of Congress, that's in the House and the Senate, so out of 535, Only six of them have so far come out with statements either calling for negotiations or non-intervention. And so we really need to get on them. There's a letter that's going to be released today from the office of Congressman Rokana and Pramila Jayapal from the Progressive Caucus. And we need to get a lot of congresspeople to sign on to that. So I would say, yes, call your congressperson and say, we want to hear from you, whether it's signing on to a letter, a statement from your office, a tweet, whatever it is, saying that you believe in the principle of non-intervention. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Extraordinary. Medea Benjamin, activist, co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange. Her new book, which you must have, you must, if you have not read Medea's book, Kingdom of the Unjust, behind the U.S.-Saudi connection, get it today. Codepink.org is the website. Medea Benjamin, at Medea, M-E-D-E-A-B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N, is her Twitter handle. Thanks so much, Medea. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Always great talking with you. I always learn something from you. I really appreciate it. Don't you just love it when something that's already amazing gets better? Well, that's the case with the X-Chair. The makers have taken what is arguably the most comfortable and supportive office chair in the world and made it even better by introducing wider seats in the X3 and X4 models of the X-Chair. That means extra support for those of us with wider bases. The good people at X-Chair are constantly innovating, 
to help improve your working comfort and productivity. And now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair comes with a 30-day no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Medea Benjamin's new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. And this is from the introduction. Through the women-led peace organization Code Pink, which I co-founded with Jody Evans after the 9-11 attacks, I have spent much of the last decade standing up against U.S. military intervention in the Middle East and supporting local democracy activists. I traveled many times to the region, listening to human rights activists, marching with them in the streets, dodging tear gas and bullets, and getting beaten up and deported by government thugs. I have seen firsthand the deadly effects of U.S. foreign policies. The 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq destroyed the lives of millions, including many of my dear friends, and unleashed the sectarian hatred that later gave birth to the Islamic State. I recall a conversation with my Iraqi colleague Yanar Mohammed, daughter of a Shiite father and a Sunni mother, and founder of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq. When I asked her what was the most notable legacy of the U.S. invasion of her country, she gave the chilling response, we, Sunnis and Shia, learned to hate each other. In another part of the Middle East, U.S. military support for Israel has wreaked havoc on the lives of Palestinians and aroused the ire of people throughout the region. Continuous U.S. military interventions, drone warfare in Yemen, to overthrowing Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, to funneling an endless stream of weapons into the region, have unleashed new levels of violence. But the United States is not the only nation whose massive footprint has been trampling on the lives of people in the Middle East. The other nation is Saudi Arabia, an oppressive monarchy that denies human rights to its own people and exports extremism around the world. It also happens to be the closest U.S. ally in the Arab world. During the 1980s and 1990s, I met intolerant and violent young men in Pakistan and Afghanistan who were trained to hate Westerners in Saudi schools. In 2001, I saw my own nation convulsed by an attack on September 11th that was perpetrated mostly by Saudis. Not hard to connect the dots behind the spread of the Saudi intolerant ideology of Wahhabism, the creation of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and the attacks in New York, Paris, Brussels, and San Bernardino. You can also connect the dots between Saudi Arabia and the failure of some of the historic uprisings associated with the Arab Spring, since the Saudi monarchy did not want calls for democracy to threaten its own grip on power. I was in Bahrain after Saudi tanks crushed the inspiring grassroots encampment in Pearl Square, where tens of thousands had gathered day after day to demand democracy. I will never forget the excitement of being in Tahrir Square during the Egyptian Revolution and watching a gasp. Uh, gassed as a military coup backed by the Saudis put some 40,000 activists behind bars. In Yemen, the Saudis took a direct military role in that nation's internal conflict with a ruthless bombing campaign. When I travel overseas, people, people often ask me why Saudi Arabia, a country that is so repressive internally and overseas, is such a close ally to the United States. Iranian friends want to know why the U.S. government is so outspoken about human rights violations in Iran, but silent about the worst abuses in the Saudi kingdom. Yemenis ask why my government supplies weapons to the very nation, Saudi Arabia, that bombed their schools and hospitals. Saudi women ask why the United States, which professes great democratic values, props up a regime that treats women as second-class citizens. The easy answer is oil, weapon sales, and other business interests. Oil has formed the basis for U.S.-Saudi ties. The kingdom has become the largest purchaser of American weapons in the world, and hundreds of billions of Saudi petrodollars help shore up the U.S. economy. But there's another reason, perhaps more critical than any of the others. The American people have not demanded an end to this dysfunctional, toxic relationship. Why? In part, because the American people know so little about it. Even American parts of a peace movement know virtually nothing about the kingdom. The Saudi press is muzzled, 
foreign journalists are strictly monitored, and only tourists visiting for religious purposes are allowed into the country. Criticizing Saudi Arabia should not be equated with support for Saudi's nemesis, Iran. The Iranian government is guilty of some of the same abuses as the Saudis. Kingdom of the unjust. Tom Hartman here with you. And Marty, listening to WCPT? The one thing I think that could derail, like, you know, any uh, Democratic uprising in 2020, and the thing that scares me the most about Trump is if he, like, starts a real big military conflict. And I think he's got his eyes set on Venezuela or, you know, some of the other countries that are... Or, or, that would be absolutely horrible. That would be World War III. But I think in any type of, like, major military conflict that Trump starts, you know, as long as it goes somewhat okay and, you know, extends into that uh, 2020 season, he could Mm -hmm. play that up nonstop. And I think that that would be something that we should all be really uh, concerned about. You're absolutely right. This was the strategy that George W. Bush laid out to Mickey Herskowitz, his biographer, the guy who wrote the first draft of Bush's autobiography, A Charge to Keep, in 1998, or maybe 1999. And what Bush told Herskowitz, as, as Cindy Sheehan has so famously said, was, well, here's the clip, actually, this... This is Cindy Sheehan. In interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then Governor George Bush stated, One of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander in chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. So there you go. I mean, that's, that's what George Bush did, and he, he knew he had to have a war if he was going to get reelected, and he did. And back in 2010, when Barack Obama was in the White House, and, you know, it was two years to the presidential election in 2012, Donald Trump tweeted out, that he fully expected Barack Obama to start a war with Iran in order to get himself reelected. Which means that a decade ago, Donald Trump was sitting around thinking, okay, the way presidents get themselves reelected is by having a war. And so, you know, of course, Barack Obama's going to do that. Well, Obama didn't do that, but it t- gives us an insight into how Trump thinks. So, Marty, I think that your concern has uh, a deep foundation. There's, it's a serious and legitimate concern. And you look at, on top of that right now, the intelligence chief this morning testified to Congress that A, Trump is lying about North Korea being nuclear free and Trump is lying that Iran is trying to start a bomb. They're both lies. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. So are these just cheap political lies that Trump is telling to keep his base, you know, stupid? Or are these setups for a potential war? Uh, George in Silmar, California. Hey, George, thanks for listening to KPFK. It says you want to correct something I said. What's up? Yes, sir. With respect, honest, thank you very much for your time on the radio. When you discussed the issue of Elliot Abrams, you said you misspoke twice. Once you said guerrillas perpetrated the massacre at El Mazote. Oh, no, it was the, it was, it was, was death squads. Yeah, it was the death squads. It was the Salvadoran military. It was the, I believe it was the Atlacatl Battalion. As I waited on the phone, I tried to find my notes, Mm. but they were regular soldiers, troopers, American weapons, American ammunition, American helicopters. And the reporters who took the photos and tried to report on it were blocked by the American media. When I tried to get in there, I was stopped by Honduran soldiers and two different militia checkpoints. Elliot Abrams stopped the reportage on an atrocity perpetrated on government supporters by government soldiers. That's how bad it actually was. Yeah. I, you know, George, your, 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 your narrative completely, uh, is completely consistent with my, my memory of this, and I hadn't looked it up. I was just going off this uh, uh, rant Abrams by Wa- Walter Einkel. I'm sorry? Elliot Abrams is a criminal. Everyone yeah. involved is a criminal. He's a convicted All the war criminal. the offices in San Salvador, everyone. 
Yeah, he's a convicted war criminal, and George Bush is putting him in charge of our Venezuela policy. And I'm convinced, I don't know if you saw yesterday, if you saw the reporting on this, but uh, Mike Pompeo, our Secretary of State, went into this uh, uh, briefing with the press with a legal pad under his arm. And on the top of the legal pad, in his own handwriting, was a note, 5,000 troops to Colombia. Now, why would we send 5,000 troops to Colombia? Colombia has a new president. He's kind of on our side. He's not asking for help. Well, if you want to invade Venezuela, Colombia is right next door. It's a great staging point. So repositioning. Yeah. Thank you, sir. And I'll get off the line. Thanks. The thanks a lot, George. I appreciate the call. And thanks for listening to KPFK. And thanks for keeping me honest here. Um, you know, this is this is just so clear. Holly in Marshall, Missouri, watching Free Speech TV. Hey, Holly, what's on your mind today? Well, I totally agree that this Trump catastrophe is the crisis that will create change because I am seeing every day, and I live in a very red rural area, young people, millennials, the health insurance, all of these things, and I'm explaining to them myself because I'm a senior, I'm 77, and I can tell them I lived through all of these periods, and I saw how it was and could be. And you had a caller yesterday who said something brilliant, which was, we'll do it like we did it before. And Trump is the change and all of the people around him. And we have terrible water now. We used to have beautiful water. We have high rates of cancer and kidney problems all of a sudden in the last 10 years. So... I think you're right, Tom, and I thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Holly. I, I hope I'm right. We'll see. Ed in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Hey, Ed, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's Hi, on your Tom. mind? I know that you think Trump's the problem, but I think he's just a symptom of the coming collapse of the world economy. Countries all around the world have their Trumps popping up, and uh, we have ours. So what you're saying, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, is that this is a more systemic problem. This is an institutional problem. This is the consequence of, you know, Buckley versus Vallejo that handed billionaires the keys to our political kingdom, as it were. Is that the sort of thing you're suggesting? Well, I know that you think Trump has the keys to the kingdom, but every time he tries to do something, the deep state reaches out and thwarts his effort. It, he's really not doing as bad damage as you think he is. I don't see the deep state stopping him from allowing 3M and these other companies that make PFOA and PFOS to poison us. You know, I don't see him stopping the Interior Department from turning federal lands over to uranium and coal and mining operations and oil and gas drilling operations for pennies on the dollar. I don't see the deep state stopping the EPA from no longer prosecuting people. You know, prosecutions, corporate prosecutions by the EPA are down 85% over the last year of the Obama administration. An 85% drop in those things. You know, I don't see the so-called deep state doing any of that. In fact, it looks to me like the deep state is being actively deconstructed, just as Steve Bannon said they intended to do. He said the whole point of the Trump administration would be the deconstruction of the administrative state. Oh, I have no doubt that they're trying to deconstruct the deep state. It's just that, as I suspected, the United States, 95% of what the United States does runs by automatic. It's, it's done by bureaucrats, and 5% is done by elected people. You know, that's about the amount But the that direction that the bureaucrats move in is defined by the political appointees. I mean, you know, look at the Interior Department. When Ryan Zinke came into Interior, all of a sudden Interior's mission changed from protecting our federal lands to selling off our federal lands. And that's what they've been doing. I can't agree with you, Ed. And I get your point. But I think that what Trump is doing is far more important than that. But your larger point of maybe this is systemic, that's an important one. I want to revisit that. The question in, in its largest frame is kind of twofold. Number one, do you think that the Trump presidency represents a crisis that is large enough to cause a substantial change in the politics of America? Because historically, it's only crises that have caused these turning points. So is the Trump administration enough of a crisis, number one? And number two, if so, who are the politicians on the national stage, and particularly those people who are running for president, the Democrats who are running for president, who you think can most effectively and successfully bring about that change? Is it Kamala Harris? Is it Bernie Sanders? Is it Elizabeth Warren? Is it Beto O'Rourke? Is it Joe Biden? 
Is it Sherrod Brown? There's a whole bunch of possibilities, right? Who would it be? But then there's this third issue, and that is if the Trump presidency represents this kind of a crisis, and I believe it does, is it really Donald Trump that is the crisis? Or is Donald Trump the symptom of a larger crisis that was brought to us by the Supreme Court and the Powell memo? In 1971, Lewis Powell wrote this memo saying conservatives, corporatists, in fact, it was corporations. I mean, explicitly, it was to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, to his friend Eugene Sindor, who ran the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and he said, or was a director of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and he said, the corporations that are chamber members need to get politically active. Now, at that point in time, in 1971, corporations thought politics is none of our business. We just keep our heads down and make money. That's what we do. And Powell said, no, no, you need to get politically active. And to the billionaire class, Powell said, you need to fund this thing, although the corporations will do it too. And we need to build think tanks. And we need to take over the judiciary. And we need to take over the universities. And we need to change the curriculum in our schools. And we need to reinvent even the history of the United States. We have to retell the stories. We have to change how people understand America. So that everybody believes that corporations could do no wrong, rich people are job creators, and, and you know, poor people are, uh, particularly if they get any benefits from government at all that are funded by taxes on rich people, that those poor people are parasites and takers. And we have to celebrate the makers. And the year after he wrote that memo, and it was taken to heart within, two, within a couple of years, you had the Heritage Foundation, you had the Cato Institute, you had the American Enterprise Institute, you had all these right-wing think tanks that now have their people literally on MSNBC every day. All these right-wing think tanks came into being, and they started you know, publishing op-eds in newspapers, and, and now they're aggressively editing Wikipedia and things like that, and they seriously took on this stuff. So... Is it possible that it's not even Donald Trump who's the crisis? Is it possible that, that in 1976, when the Supreme Court, now with Lewis Powell on it, in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, said, well, you know, if a billionaire or a corporation wants to own a politician, that's fine. That's First Amendment protected free speech. You can't regulate that anymore, even though we've been regulating it since the beginning of the republic. Which leads us right to, you know, the Koch brothers and Shelley Adelson and Robert Mercer and all these other right-wing billionaires putting uh, their friend, you know, right-wing billionaire Donald Trump in the White House while their other friend, right-wing billionaire Rupert Murdoch, is running, you know, an all-Trump, all-the-time TV network. Is that the real crisis? This giant infrastructure that the Supreme Court and Lewis Powell brought into being. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, are we at a crisis point? Is it great enough that it'll produce significant political change, or do we have to wait for the economy to crash in addition? And will this produce, you know, some sort of political outcome that is revolutionary, essentially, or that at least is change? Is it going to produce a third-party candidate? Will it be Howard Schultz? Somehow I think not. Is it going to move the Democratic Party back in the direction of the great society and the New Deal? back to its progressive roots? Or is it you know, going to move the Democratic Party farther to the right? Back to picking up your phone calls here. Adela in Los Angeles. Adela, so can you first explain to me when people say that Trump is a symptom, sorry, mm -hmm. um, what do they mean by that? Symptom of what? It's kind of like a pet peeve of mine, sorry. Trump is a symptom of a broken system, a, a system where the Koch brothers can pour $800 million into an election and get senators and congressmen and women and, and uh, people elected at the state and local level all across the country, where the Mercers, where Robert Mercer can toss a couple million bucks at Cambridge Analytica and you know help calibrate the attacks on Hillary Clinton on Facebook, apparently in collaboration with groups out of Russia, in ways that take down Hillary Clinton. The Supreme Court has ruled on numerous occasions since 1976 in Buckley versus Vallejo, First National Bank versus Bellotti, 78, Citizens United, 2010, McCutcheon, 2013. In each one of these cases, ruled that it's just fine for billionaires and big corporations to own their very own politicians. 
and lobbying is not bribery and campaign contributions are not bribery and and uh, the appearance of bribery is not even bribery that is this broken system that was given to us by the supreme court in 1976 and we have to acknowledge that and it had these players had these billionaire players not been able to spend the kind of money that they have been able to spend since 1976 and own politicians the way that they own politicians we would not have donald trump in the white house that's what people mean a deal <clears throat> The billionaire oligarch takeover of the United States that started in the early 70s after the Powell memo that achieved its first major victory in 1981 with the installation of Ronald Reagan as president after uh, he and his campaign colluded with the Iranians to hold the hostages to hurt Jimmy Carter. And now all the way up to today, the systematic dismantling, not just of the American economy, but also of American democracy by these oligarchs like Wilbur Ross, who says, well, why can't these workers simply go to their bank and ask for a loan? Uh, <laughs> clueless billionaires on display. But in the meantime, while all this is going on, all this sturm and drang and drama, there's actually some real activity happening in the background that you need to know about. You're listening to Tom Hartman. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background on my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com T-H-O-M. For three months free with a one-year package, visit expressvpn.com Tom to learn more. Greg Palace is on the line with us, the investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, his most recent The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. GregPalast.com is his website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palace, just like I'm Tom underscore Hartman. Greg, welcome back. Glad to be with you again, Tom. It's always great talking to you, Greg. So tell us about the de-trumping of America, to use your phrase. You know, wow. how, okay, well, you know, while we've been talking about whether we should have slats or drones in the desert to eliminate the iguanas crossing the border in nowhere, the real wall, the real battle, is happening in the immigration courts, and we have nine million, nine million green card holders who are eligible to become voting citizens, and they're being held up. That's the real wall that Trump has put up. In just his short two years, he's nearly doubled, in fact, probably by the end of this stoppage, he's doubled the number of citizenship cases that are backlogged to, are you ready, to eight hundred thousand nearly a million and so it's also discouraging and costly and difficult for new people to uh, even apply here's some of the numbers that are very important when you talk about de-trumping america okay there are nine hundred sixty thousand nearly one million texans who have green cards but don't have citizenship nearly one million and yet beto o'rourke only lost by two hundred fifteen thousand votes the number of green card holders who could become voting citizens is three times the margin of Stacey Abrams' loss in Georgia. And if you took Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida, which has a million, just Florida alone has a million people waiting for the courts to give them citizenship who are green card holders, Trump would have been crushed in the Electoral College. If we can move... That's because he beat Clinton in Florida America, by 100,000 votes, basically? Yeah, in Florida, Trump won officially by 113,000 votes. Of course, a lot of that was steal, but right. nevertheless, it's just 113,000 votes, which is about, there's eight green card holders who can vote, who could be eligible to vote if they get their citizenship. Trump has been blockading citizenship. That's the real wall while we're all distracted. With How, is hmm? How is he doing this, How is he doing this? One, he's put all kinds of new rules on how the immigration operation runs, so it's a priority. You know, when you have a criminal case, 
throwing someone out or you detain someone, that becomes a priority in all citizenship cases, civil cases, uh, go by the boards. You've also had a... Uh, so wait a minute, you're saying that the internal court system, as it were, you know, I'm sure I'm mangling the language here, but correct me, that the internal system that processes green card holders who want to become citizens and turns them into citizens is the exact same infrastructure that deals with somebody that ICE catches, who they say this guy is... Widely. I mean, there are different, there are different parts of, that, of our whole immigration apparatus. But here's what's really important. We don't have the funds. Also, right now, remember when Trump came in, you had a lot of scared green card holders that said, oh, my God, I better get citizenship. You're, you're talking about 9 million people, right. many of whom have been waiting around, figuring, well, I'm okay. I can just wait another 5, 10 years. Many do. And now they're not. So if we could get these people, if we get these Americans, I have a friend who's from Honduras, came here at the age of 7. Right now it's at the INS. It's a mess. Not the INS. It's now ICE and the other immigration agencies. He could be a voter, and he wants to be a voter. Hmm. We could transform America. And by the way, Trump did offer over half a billion dollars for 75 judges and assistant personnel to begin moving the backlogs at the immigration agencies. That's not something that's not much talked about. You know, we're talking about hmm. flats and drones, but that's actually serious stuff. Was that because um, he wanted to pack the immigration courts with right-wing, hardline judges who would simply say no to every, pretty much every immigrant, or particularly any, every immigrant of color who wanted to be a U.S. citizen? No question. But, you know, in the end, if we don't process the applications, we're not going to get the, the people who are here, who are Americans, who've been here most of their lives, a lot of their lives, and want to be citizens. Right. We can transform America. It's not going to be easy. Trump is the president. And it's, yes, everything he's doing is ugly. But we should be concentrating on making citizens, voting citizens, of the Americans who are here Immigrants, Americans. So what can that we do? How do we do that, Greg? I mean, what can the average person do? Who can they call? What can, I mean, where do you start trying to help these 9 million people become U.S. citizens? Well, I know it's a massive backlog, but let's make the backlog even bigger. Everyone knows someone holding a green card. Encourage them and help them. There are groups like Catholic Charities and others who are working to help people process applications from green card to citizenship. Let's really make this a big push. The second is, I think that that's where I'm sorry, but I, I know you might hate what I'm about to say. Nancy Pelosi should walk into the Oval Office and start bargaining and talking about that half billion dollars, the extra judges. Let's talk about making the immigration system and the citizenship machinery work. Because if you get more citizens, Trump's out of a job. You know, I have a friend who's a green card holder, and he's afraid, concerned, let's say, that if he applies for citizenship, that he's putting a target on his back, that he's saying to Trump, you know, I might be one of the people that you don't want here, and his comfortable, regular renewal of his green card might be at risk. No question. I'm talking to my friend, I won't give his last name, obviously, Ramon, from Honduras, has been told by his family, because many were killed by death squads, that he'll be dead within a week if he's sent back to Honduras. They've lost his green card, reap. Yes, people are scared. That's why I say help people get, we need to support groups like Catholic Charities and LULAC and other organizations that are, in fact, helping people go through the process and have lawyers and have protectors when they're making this application. Now, keep in mind, we, let's not overdo the fear and push people away because there are 9 million people with green cards, and while Trump has talked about canceling green cards, that hasn't happened. You know, there might be a few rare cases, but basically 9 million people can go and get citizenship. This is a big, big group of potential voters that could utterly transform the political landscape of America, and we should be concentrating on that. And I'm sorry, you know, whether it's slats or drones in the desert is not going to make a big difference. What's going to make a difference is making citizens of Americans who are here. Yeah, no, I get it. Uh, Greg, before we end the segment, I'm curious what the status of interstate cross-check is. I understand that Illinois just said no to it. Another one bites the dust. Uh, Illinois, yeah. where the Reverend Jesse Jackson and I have filed a federal lawsuit against the state for being in Chris Kobach's ridiculous, racist, wrongful interstate cross-check program, the state Board of Elections voted 8-0 
to dump the interstate cross-check program, a horrible racist purge program. The thing is, the Reverend Jackson and I are not dropping our suit because there are 550,000, that's over half a million people, who have been purged from the voter rolls, our estimate... Just in Illinois. Just in Illinois, about 73% were wrongly removed, over 100,000 by the cross-check program. And so we are, we're not going to stop until the people are returned to the voter rolls. A lot of, and by the way, you go to GregPouse.com and you can look up, if you're in Illinois, if you are on the purge list, uh, go to the top of my site, look it up, see if your name's there, and re-register. Most people who have been removed have no idea they've been removed. I don't want you to be surprised in 2020. We're trying to get you restored. But, you know, uh, we have to deal with Trump's courts. Was this the consequence of was it Bruce Rauner, the Republican billionaire who was governor of the state? Was this his thing? He was booted, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and he's out and now. So what so, happened it was yeah. the Republicans had blocked getting out of cross-check in a 4-4 vote of the Board of Elections. Now it's 8-0 to get out, in part because, frankly, thank you, Tom, you have really helped me make cross-check a national issue, something that people hadn't heard of, and now it's kind of poisonous. It's got a lot of publicity in Illinois, in Indiana, in Georgia, in all these states, and states are pulling out. Kentucky pulled out. Massachusetts pulled out. You know, it's mostly GOP states at this point. It is imploding, and by the way, my next target, we filed suit in Kansas. It's the state of Kansas which processes this, creates right. this whole phony purge list. I think we're going to be able to stop cross-check in its cradle since Kobach was removed. From your lips to God's ears, Greg. Greg, the great Greg Palace, the investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, his most recent, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. GregPalace.com is the website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palace. Greg, thank you. You're welcome, Tom. Blaine in Thousand Oaks, California. Hey, Blaine, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Tom, you're my hero. Been listening to you for 30-odd years. Thank you. <laughs> now, my two cents is there's definitely a crisis, and this particular one, frankly, scares the crap out of me. But I think the only hope at this time is the ability of the Democratic Party to differentiate itself from the Republican light position they've evolved into in the past decades. Yes, now, this, this new patch of uh, progressives gives me a glimmer of hope, but the real challenge is for them to wrench the power away from the corporate overseers who still control the Democratic Party. That's the key. No, I, I, I agree. There's uh, 200 and what, to 12, I think, or something like that, Democrats in the House of Representatives, and the uh-huh. Congressional Progressive Caucus is just a little short of 100 people. So it's not quite 50%, but they're getting there. Yeah, but They're getting there. It's one yeah, of the yeah. fastest growing caucuses out there. You know, I've, I've talked to uh, Senator uh, Kopan on the radio, and, and you know he's progressive, but I feel like he... He's still working from a position of fear. This is a California state senator? I'm not sure I know who you're talking about. No, in Minnesota. Oh, Mark Pocan. He's a congressman. Yeah, Yeah, Mark Okay, I'm sorry. Senator Pocan. Yeah, Yeah. got it. From the feeling I get from him, you know, they talk about the boldness. You know, let's Mm -hmm. go bold. You know, and you get that from Cassio-Cortez. I mean, she's out there and getting the media. Right. Doing these, where's Mitch and seventy uh, percent? Oh, That's she's she's brilliant. They she, gotta get involved. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and she is using all the things that she has, all the tools that she has. She's a multi-dimensional character, and she's using all of them uh, very effectively. And I think that she's the new role model for progressives in Congress. Um, Blaine, thanks for the call. Spot on. Yeah, young people will save us. Thank God. Oh, man, it's it's you look back at the history of this country. That's how it's happened pretty much every single time. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Dirk in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Dirk, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, regarding uh, Howard Schultz, the Starbucks CEO that's planning on uh, trying to run for president. Right. I'm sure I'm not the first, but how about a hashtag, no more billionaires? Amen. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah. Nobillionaires.com, Oregon Net are, are domains that I have, and, and I'm with yeah, you. I, see, uh, I think Bloomberg has come out. People were worried about him getting in. I know, I and know. He, and basically he said, this will put Trump in if he does 
follow through. So. Yeah, yeah, Bloomberg is right. If, if Howard Schultz runs, that's, you know, if he gets any kind of traction at all, that's going to take away from the Democrats. I'm with you. Dirk, thank yeah. you for the call. Well said. Brian in Brooklyn, New York, listening to WBAI. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Hey, good afternoon, Tom. I'm really grateful for um, being on the air and everything. I just want to let you know all the foolishness that's going on in society. I feel like there's a strong sense of moral decay when it's coming to the status quo of people and their mentality. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, and I, I hear you talk about things, and I, I, I want to let you know that you're spot on because you're touching on topics that I've thought of to myself, you know, when it comes to um, for the reason for Trump and why is such a um, buffoon able to make it into the presidential office. It's my personal opinion. Trump orchestrated a plan mm -hmm. as the demoralization of society yep. and this destabilization. Everything is being perverted. The economy's on the way down. Mentality's on the way down. You're, you're absolutely right, you know, Brian. This is, this is why the billionaires fund people who go on the air and say things like, oh, it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican. They're all the same. Uh, you know, and these, these kind of cynical responses in social media. Trump is demoralizing the country, not just with his ignorance, but there's an actual demoralization campaign to cause people not to think that their vote will count. Brian, so well said. Thank you very much for the call. Sharice in Polsbo, Washington. Hey, Sharice, uh, last caller of the day. Hi. What's up? Okay. I was thinking about the divide between classes and everything like that, and I was thinking about how after World War II, when everybody was so tight with their money and big uh, companies wanted to get people spending, they started making those commercials, you know, where it created that, you know, keep up with the Joneses thing, you know, the mm -hmm. guy who's buying his car with the blonde in his car, and now the neighbor's saying, oh, why don't I have one of those cars? Maybe I get it. You know what I mean? Yep. The, the it was a genius campaign, and it got everybody spending money. And why don't the billionaires, instead of trying to run for office, get together, hire an amazing advertising team, and try to figure out how we can use commercials or, you know, TV, which is how you're going to turn people around, to um, believe in climate change or to, uh, you know, pull together as one or stop the divide. I think we're getting there, Sharice. I think increasingly the, the, the Tom Steyers of the world are realizing that you just can't play on the fringes. You've got to go right for the right for the juggler with this stuff. Sharice, thank you for the call. And they're looking at how the Koch brothers spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars every election cycle and end up with the Republican Party as a wholly owned subsidiary area of basically Coke Industries. It's an amazing thing, and I think that uh, some progressive billionaires are starting to wake up. Anyhow, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Tag, you're it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.